Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Stephen Brannan. Well, we're six days in to Christmastide. This is the halfway mark. Uh, if it's starting to not feel like Christmas anymore, today is a good opportunity to adjust ourselves, to double down on the Christmas spirit, to delve further into the mystery of all that it means. On Christmas, Father Michael eloquently described the central mystery of Christmas for us, that the eternal Word and Son of the Father, who we believe to be God from God, light from light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all the things were made, this same Word of God came down from heaven and was made man. Came down from heaven. This is a poetic, almost childlike way of describing what really cannot be described. The uncreated God, who alone exists by his own power. Everything else in creation, including you and me, exists only because of God's power and sustaining will, who is outside of time, space, matter, and even existence as we know it, entered into existence, into time and space and matter. The uncreated became created, created of himself. St. Augustine puts it this way, he by whom all things were made was made one of all things. The son of God by the father without a mother became the son of man by a mother without a father. The word who is God before all time became flesh at the appointed time. The maker of the sun was made under the sun. He who fills the world lays in a manger, great in the form of God, but tiny in the form of a servant. And this was in such a way that neither was his greatness diminished by his tininess, nor was his tininess overcome by his greatness. The poetry is the only way to deal with a mystery like this. This goes beyond the bounds of our language. And trust me, the more you think about and contemplate what the incarnation is, the more it will expand and excite your mind. How often do we do that? Just sit and contemplate what it means for God to become a man. It can almost get too familiar to us. You know, we ought to give ourselves that chance to occasionally just let it become strange again. It is the season. But if the metaphysics of the Incarnation wasn't enough on its own to contemplate this season. The ramifications of the Incarnation in this world are presented to us for our consideration also. And of all the consequences of God becoming a man to consider, guess what gets put in front of us in the church calendar first thing? Martyrdom. Martyrdom. What happens now that God has become one of us? People start dying on his account. The day after Christmas is the Feast of St. Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian Church. The day after that is the Feast of the Apostle John, a martyr in will, not in deed. Um, in fact, he was the only one of the apostles not killed, but not for lack of trying. He was sentenced to death in Rome. He was poisoned, but lived. He was dipped in a cauldron of boiling oil, but lived. And finally, he was just exiled off to the island of Patmos, where he eventually died as a prisoner. And then the day after that, was the Feast of the Holy Innocents, those thousands of babies killed 
on Herod's order in his attempt to snuff out the newborn king that the Magi had come to venerate. So the Prince of Peace is born, and immediately the church is commemorating suffering and death on his account. You could forgive the uninitiated for being confused by this. But just on a worldly level, if you think about it, it actually makes sense. If a new authority is born into this world, the supreme authority actually, the king of all kings, then it's pretty obvious that this is going to upset the current regimes. Those in authority don't like having to answer to another. Herod refused to accept that a different, a legitimate, because he wasn't king of the Jews, might be taking his place, so he murdered thousands of children. The Sanhedrin refused to believe that the real Messiah and the true religious authority for the people was this man that St. Stephen was telling them about, so they stoned him. Nero refused to believe that any other person in the entire world could possibly outrank him in kingly power or honor, so he sentenced John to death. So it's not the fault of the Prince of Peace, the God of love. He, after all, came in the most gentle, disarming, adorable way possible. The cause of these martyrdoms wasn't the newborn Christ, but rather the darkness in the hearts of the rulers of this world. But that darkness isn't limited to kings and Sanhedrins and emperors. If I'm anything like you, then I suspect we all harbor at least some of that very same darkness, that same sickness in all of our own hearts. We may not have kingdoms, but every one of us has some realm that we like to think of as our own, some little kingdom over which we exercise a measure of authority, whether it be at our jobs, in our homes, among certain of our family, kids, uh, over our time, our money, maybe pet sins. There's some little scope of control that we all know that we have. We can control and wield authority over certain things. That's by design. We were made to be able to do that. But we found out quickly in the garden that uh, this whole not giving up a thing, but wanting control, wanting to attain that which is supposed to be off limits uh, is a really tough thing for us. So if it came down to it, if you believe that your authority and power over those little things of yours was soon to be lost, handed over to someone else, would you not balk at that at least a little? Who of us wouldn't want to tighten our grip and not let go of those things? Who wouldn't feel that fire of rebellion, argumentation, maybe even violence, start to rise out of the dark places in our hearts? In fact, we should probably all thank God that we haven't been given a greater scope of authority, if we haven't yet dealt with the sickness that may be affecting us with the little kingdoms and circumstances that we already have. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Can we be quite certain how we should have behaved if we had been saddled with the psychological outfit and then the bad upbringing and then the power of, say, Himmler? What would you or I have done if we had been born into the circumstances of Herod or Nero? If you're not sure, then bring the question back home. What would you do if your current scope of authority and control were taken away? It's an important question because the truth is they will be. None of this is permanent. I'm not even talking about the fact that we're all going to die, although, yes, we're all going to die. What I mean is that in the next hour, even if you're still alive, your life circumstances could change so radically that nothing at all will feel the same. 
Nothing that we like to think of as solid or permanent, our houses, our 401ks, our families, the United States of America, are reliable, are permanent. All of these things are ultimately out of our hands. And this isn't even theoretical or conjectural or thinking about something down the road. This is for certain. This is a definite thing. In fact, all those things at this very moment are passing away. That which is in your control is at this exact moment, to one degree or another, slipping away from you. And this is the great secret that separates the tyrants from the martyrs. The tyrants think that they can maintain some or all of their control, while the martyrs hold on to nothing. They hold on to nothing, but in their very relinquishing of everything, of life itself, they gain eternal life. They gain glory and remembrance. It's the martyrs, not Herod or Nero, that are still celebrated, venerated, praised, and lauded 2,000 years later. What is their secret? How could they let go of whatever spheres of authority they had? How could they be at peace if at any moment whatever they controlled was suddenly gone? How could they be at peace in the final moments when their very lives were being snuffed out? What is their secret? Their secret, I think, is where their eyes were focused. Where was St. Stephen looking as the rocks crushed his bones? At Christ standing in heaven? Where was St. John looking as he languished in exile, in prison, at Christ in his vision of heaven? But funny enough, it's that very vision of Christ in heaven and kingly power and authority, the mighty, victorious, reigning champion of all creation that would have been and maybe still will be one day the most stressful vision for Herod and Nero and the Sanhedrin. Now, how bad is it to say, if I'm being honest, that this fully glorified and reigning Christ also stresses me? In certain ways and at certain times, I, unlike Stephen and John, who lifted their eyes to see that, I rather avert my eyes so that I don't have to. I absolutely do not live up to my namesake. But if I can't always look with joy on the blinding glory of the risen and glorified and authoritative Christ on the throne of his kingdom, maybe there's somewhere I can bear to look upon him. Maybe that's where Christmas does me the most good. Can I bear to look upon Christ as a baby, wrapped up so tight that he can't move, laying in a pile of hay with the comedic and smelly animals looking dumbly down at him, with all the quiet tranquility of that chubby-cheeked sleeping baby, wondered over by an awkward assembly of a, a young girl slash new mother, this perplexed uh, but committed, as we heard in the in the um, reading at Matin's uh, older stepfather, and this handful of completely dumbfounded shepherds just gawking. Am I at all more comfortable knowing that it's this baby to whom I owe all my little realms of control and authority? Well, yeah, I am. <laughs> it helps. It helps me. Maybe if we're not always ready for the mature martyr's vision of Christ in heaven, we can turn to Christ in the manger. I'm not saying that we should emulate Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights and begin our prayers with, Dear Lord, Baby Jesus. Uh, I don't think that's how we ought to be approaching Jesus in our prayers. But maybe it's not a bad idea 
to learn how the church does teach us to relate to God in his human infancy. In the midnight collect for Christmas, we ask that the Father, um, we ask the Father that as we joyfully receive the newborn Christ for our Redeemer, we may with sure confidence behold him when he comes to be our judge. See how that prayer puts both of those things together? They're juxtaposed, but they're put together. As we joyfully receive the newborn Christ for our Redeemer, then we may with sure confidence, like the mature martyrs, behold him when he shall come to be our judge. They actually go together. In the post-communion prayer for that night, we acknowledge that through the sacrament we, quote, draw near with gladness unto the birth of Jesus. So through communing with him in the sacrament, we spiritually draw near to his actual birth. We draw near to him spiritually to the incarnated Christ laying in a manger. This is how we encounter Christ in the crib, through holy contemplation and through holy communion. We contemplate his lowliness and find him utterly accessible. We receive him in communion and literally taste and see that he is good. The presence of God in this world will inevitably anger tyrants and send martyrs to their deaths. We should neither be angered like the tyrants at the prospect of losing our little kingdoms, nor horrified at the prospect of ourselves becoming martyrs, because really, those are both the same reactions, just operating at different degrees. They're both reactions of people unwilling to let go of everything. Instead, we should look with joy on the newborn king, confident that Jesus was born to free us from all those fears and furies. Because look at how he came. Come, let us adore him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.